Hello, this is Joshua Bell, and this was my sermon from September 13th, 2020. It's entitled, Peter and the Math Problem. I hope you enjoy it. God bless. Uh, we're going to read from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18 today. Can you, can you tell that we're in Matthew again? I mean, we've been in Matthew for the last four or five weeks. Guess where we're going to be next week? Matthew. James. Oh. <laughs> Just kidding. It'll be Matthew. She was hoping. If you'd like to follow along as I read aloud, it's found in your pew Bibles on the New Testament section of your Bible on page 19. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times. But I tell you, 77 times. Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. I want you to hear that. For this, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all of his possessions and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, having saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, but that same slave as he went out, came upon his fellow slaves who owned him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt you paid because you pleaded with me. Should you not have mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So... My heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. May God bless the reading of God's holy scripture. Amen. Now, there's a little bit of a math problem in this. There's an aspect to this that I have to get into, but Peter initiates this entire conversation by probing the farthest frontiers of forgiveness. He asks the question, do I really have to forgive him? It suggests that Peter is more interested in the statute of limitations than extending unilateral forgiveness. Jesus' fabulous tale portrays as no midrash or lecture in any way, shape, or form the sheer idiocy 
and incongruency of withholding forgiveness from those who wound him or wound us. So let's talk about this a little bit. Offenders in Jesus' day were forgiven up to three times. And a fourth offense need not be forgiven. That's how they know that at that moment that they could go to war or bring vengeance upon this person that continues to wrong them. Fourth time, they're done. Or as we might say, three strikes and you're out. The fourth time you do me wrong, I can bring vengeance or war against you. Now, Peter has no doubt learned that in the school of Jesus, forgiveness must replace vengeance. But here, Peter probes the limits of this kind of forgiveness. Peter's question reveals that he's only half converted to Jesus' forgiveness in the sense that he is still counting how many times and has only departed quantitatively, not qualitatively, from the Jewish notion that someone may be forgiven once, twice, maybe three times, but not four. Matthew has also clearly allegorized the parable so that the king also equals God. And that the debt equals sin in this story. The first servant, the one who is forgiven an enormous amount, is the debt of sin forgiven by God. The second servant, however, one who has committed an ordinary sin against a fellow human being or a fellow Christian, when the Christian does not forgive as he or she has been forgiven, God's own forgiveness is then invalidated which kind of illustrates the awfulness of failing to forgive as God would forgive. So it brings us to that point of how do we forgive? You tend to be quick or slow to forgive. I mean, what's the hardest thing to do to ask for forgiveness? Right? If you've known you've done something wrong, it's the hardest thing that we do. It's the most humbling. It's the most, and sometimes humiliating things when you, you've wronged somebody and you go to that person and you say, please, I, I, just, I just need you to forgive me. Because, let's put it bluntly, you put yourself out there recognizing that they might not. Or how about to give forgiveness? What happens when they've really, really, really wronged you? Is it something easy to forgive? And Jesus then decides to make this even more complicated and says that you're supposed to continually forgive. So much so that you eventually forget how many times you've given forgiveness. So I have a story to tell you about my own self. It took me a long time to understand true forgiveness. When I was younger, not that anything to do with my parents or anything to do with the place that I grew up in, it just happened. I just was angry all the time. All the time. 
My brothers and sisters refer to it as the time before Carmen, so we call it B.C. <laughs> I just loved to be angry all the time, and I didn't really know why. All I knew is, is that I felt wronged all the time, and I will never forget this one time that I actually was wronged. And I didn't forgive for a really, really long time, and I didn't understand what this meant. Let me give you an example. Carmen and I get engaged when we were in Weatherford, Oklahoma, and we moved to southeastern Oklahoma to go to Durant at Southeastern Oklahoma State University. And we, the reason why is this, I, we were going to get married, and I wanted to get married in a place that we were closer to home. And as we were closer to home, I felt like this was made sense because I was in McAllister, my parents were in McAllister, Carmen's parents were close to Fort Smith. This made sense. But the part you don't know is, is that I love music. I love every single part of music. I love music history. I love music theory. I love singing music. I love playing music. Some would say that if God was to check my bones, they vibrate with the sounds of my favorite styles of music. So to say that music was a part of my soul is an understatement. When I went from Southwestern to Southeastern, I somehow was able to continue having a full scholarship to go to Durant. I loved music, but I wanted to not get a music education degree because I didn't want to teach high school kids. I really didn't want to teach elementary kids music. They, 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 they have the difference of opinion as to what was good music and what was, in my opinion, the right music. And I remember going to Southeastern with this idea that I was going to get a degree in sacred music so that I could become a music history professor because I love the details. Like how Mozart creates the Requiem and he never finishes it and then some great writer, producer, director writes this completely false narrative of how Jesus, I mean not Jesus, how Mozart creates the, the Requiem in this movie called Amadeus. And it's really cool. It's a good movie. Total nonsense, historically wise. And I loved that part of my life. You're probably saying, okay, Josh, where's this story going? Well, part of being a music history major was is that I had to take piano and organ and uh, I was a trumpet player not a great trumpet player by this point and I was a, a, a horn player which you, you learn later on that it's not French horn it's horn and F because we're nerds that way and I had to take piano well most of you know that I like to work with my hands and there was this one time that I was working with my hands and a garage door fell on my hand so hard that it cut all the way to the bone. And I had to have stitches and I had to have it taped up together and I had this really gross, awful looking thing. But the injury happened two weeks before what we call our juries. And that's when we play in front of our professors and they say, yep, they can move on. It was my very last class at Southeastern Oklahoma State University. I reached all the, the particulars 
to get my degree in, the, in sacred music. And I had two weeks before I was supposed to take this jury, and I walk into the class, talk to my, my piano slash organ teacher, and I will never forget this. He looks me straight in the face, and he says, you know, I've seen a lot of people do a lot of things to get out of taking a piano jury's, but I can't believe you mutilated yourself so that you don't have to take this. Now, I remember looking at him, thinking to myself, I'm not allowed to hit my professor. <laughs> I remember thinking this very clearly. I mean, I had the image in my head and saying, no, I'm not allowed to do this, but how, in, how rude can you be? And I remember I wasn't very smart back then, filled with a lot of temper, but not very smart. And I remember saying to him and said, do you honestly think that I would hurt myself so that I had to spend an entire, another semester with you? Well, he didn't respond very well to that. And then I remember he and I having this heated debate, some might call it an argument, about how I had achieved my qualifications to get my degree and maybe I could do everything with my right hand, right? And then after that was done, I could come back when it was healed and do it with my left hand. He didn't like that either. And I remember we, the conversation was heated enough that I was called into the head of the music department's office and so was this professor and we were sitting there in the office and we're yelling at each other, um, sorry, speaking passionately to one another. And my, the head of the music department says, well, I've heard both sides. Josh, I need to talk to you. I knew the answer before he even opened his mouth. He looked me straight in the face and he said, listen, Josh, you've accomplished everything. You've done great things. We're really excited about your future, but it's not here at Southeastern Oklahoma State University. I know that all you lack is your piano proficiency, but... I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. So, one could say I was filled with a little bit of anger. And I looked at my professor and I said, the head of the music department, I said, I, I apologize. I'm sorry that my temper got the best of me, but do you honestly think that I would have cut my hand so that I had to spend another semester with him? And he says, no. And he said, if it was in my power, I would say, give him the degree and let him go. So needless to say, the next 10 years of my life were a little bit painful because what ended up happening is that I didn't get my degree from Southeastern Oklahoma State University. And for all of you that are watching online, uh, yeah, I'm telling the truth. You all know. I ended up having to go to Alva and, get my, and go to get my degrees at Northwestern Oklahoma State. And I remember Dr. Schrader and uh, Dr. Mr. And Mrs. Schrader saying, well, Josh, uh, we don't have any music classes we can offer you because you've taken them all. So you're going to have to take other classes. And I remember being forced to take psychology classes and sociology classes, which then made me have to stay in college longer. And by the time I finished, I'd been in undergraduate school for eight years because of my temper. Honestly, is what it was. Now, fast forward a couple years in my life, 
every time that I had the opportunity to go sing, I mean, I sang with the Dallas-Fort Worth Opera. I sang in Oklahoma City. I sang all over the East Coast. I, I won Nats, which is a big deal for those of you that are in music. I, and on the East Coast, and I was a, a finalist for the Metropolitan Opera East Coast Division. I did all of those things, but none of them brought me joy because at the end of the day, all I could think about was that guy who ruined my life. My wife looks at me in the face and she says, I don't understand why you're still so mad. And she has this beautiful ability to turn it off and say, they are inconsequential to my existence when they do her wrong. I did not know how to do that. She says, you have, you have beautiful children. You have me. We have a great life. Why are you still so angry? Because he said I did it on purpose. The one thing that I loved with my whole being, I did it on purpose. That's when I learned how to pray. I remember it as if it was yesterday. I was getting ready to be 33 years old. I was standing on the side of a mountain in the Blue Ridge Mountains in what we call kind of Western Virginia, not West Virginia. And I was having this conversation that most of you do when you're really angry at something or someone and you're standing there, you're yelling and you're screaming, God, why? And all of a sudden, I like to call this the, uh, the Jesus uh, kick me in the pants moment. I'm sitting there and all of a sudden it was like this big, mighty rushing wind hits me and I fall right on my fanny <laughs> right there on the side of the mountain. And I could hear in this voice that says, Josh, let it go. But you realize he's ruined my whole life, God. Let it go. I, I could have had my degree in sacred music. I worked so hard. Let it go. But look at what I could have. Josh, let it go. It was then that I noticed that I wasn't trying to forgive him. I needed to forgive myself. I had no right to be that angry. I could have done this a whole lot of different ways. My life was not ruined. It was just a moment. It was a blip. It was a speck in the aspect of my existence. It was that day that I forgave him. And myself. Now, did I do it perfectly? No. <laughs> My wife would tell you it took at least another five or six years in therapy before I learned how to forgive myself and to not be angry all the time. God's forgiveness is so powerful that even in the midst of our own dumb dumbness, God still loves us and gives us a sense of grace. Peter's not asking the question of how many times. He's asking the question of, on our behalf, how much is enough till I finally believe it? And Jesus says very clearly, until you do. It's not seven times, it's 77 times. And if that doesn't work, you keep trying and you keep trying and you keep trying. 
Why? Because God forgave you with the very first try. Man, I tell you all the time, but I mean it. I don't know and, and I never did believe that I deserved God's grace. I never did believe that God, I deserved God's forgiveness for the things that I had done when I was younger. The things that I had said when I was older. The people that I've wronged as I've even been as your senior minister. And Jesus says, yeah, Josh, but you have been. You see, the math, I wasn't really good at math. You know, Peter's keeping score, like, you know, as a Jewish person would. After the third time, I could do this, and everything's going to be fine. I, I was really poor at math. I always joke about it with Kevin and April, that I was in the dumb, dumb math classes all the way through high school, and even in college, and I had to take those three times just to pass, right? So I think the beautiful part about this scripture is, is that Jesus makes it simpler for us to understand. He, he breaks it down, the math problem, in such a way that anybody can understand it. It's, it's simple, but it's not exactly correct. <laughs> God loves us so much that he gave us his only son. We know that. Even with our humanity. God, God loved us so much that he gave us his only son. And Jesus loved us so much that he was willing to die to forgive us of our sins. And I know that those two things added together equals that I've been forgiven. even in spite of what I do. So our task as Christians, our mandate as Christians, is to find ways that help us forgive those who have wronged us. We have to find ways of allowing God's forgiveness that has affected our life and our willingness to forgive not just the other people, you see, not just the ones that wronged us, but to forgive ourselves. That amazing grace that we talked about in the first hymn. You see, the math has been made simple. The question that we have before us is if, are we willing to try to forgive ourselves? as well as those who have wronged us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.